Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 242 Practicing at the Crossroads. We're joined this week by Buddhist teacher Martine Batchelor to hear about her personal journey as a Buddhist nun in Korea. This is part one of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm really thrilled today to be joined by a special guest, Martine Batchelor. Uh, Martine, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with the Buddhist Geeks. It's your evening, our morning, and we're connecting from across the globe. It's really fun. Thank you. No, it's wonderful. I'm glad to meet the Buddhist Geeks, and I look forward to have some uh, fun. Nice. And just a little background, a personal background. I met Martine recently at a dinner in Los Angeles. Uh, your husband, Stephen, was there, who we've had on the show, and a couple other people who we've had on the show. And it was just a wonderful gathering and I really enjoyed hanging out with you during that time and getting to know a little bit about you. And that's part of the reason I thought it'd be really fun to have you on the show, because I just enjoyed so many of the things that you had to say that night. I also had mentioned that we, that we helped convince you to get on Twitter that night. So um, people want to check you out. You're now on Twitter and you're tweeting all kinds of fun stuff. Exactly, exactly. Well, I'm not totally... I have to learn more about Twitter. I make mistakes time to time, but it's interesting. It's fun. Cool. And then a little bit about your practice background and your kind of writing background. You're a former Buddhist nun. You studied uh, Zen Buddhism, actually a Korean form of Buddhism, under the guidance of Kusan Sunim. And you've written several books. Uh, the most recent is The Spirit of the Buddha. Uh, you've also written a book on Buddhism and ecology, on the, the path of compassion, the Bodhisattva precepts, and several others, some that have to do with uh, women in Korean Zen. You've had a long history of writing and of practice, and we wanted to start by kind of exploring a bit of your background with the Buddhist practice piece. And I was wondering if you could share how you got into this whole Buddhist thing. Well, you see, the thing is that uh, I really don't come from a religious family and more from a socialist family. And so from a very young age, I wanted to save the world. And then I became an anarchist, and then encountered Buddhism serendipitously. By accident, I um, started to live with some uh, free jazz band in Paris when I was uh, 19, 20. Actually, one of the, the guys was into uh, Buddhism, and he had a book, the Dharmapada, which actually I could say changed my life because I was reading it, and there was this short piece where the Buddha seems to imply or suggest that if I wanted to change others, maybe I should change myself first. And I thought, this is a good point, that, you know, I want to change the world, but if I cannot even change myself, it's going to be impossible. And I reflected, because I was quite idealistic at the time, I reflected that, you know, I could tell myself, don't be egoist, don't be this, don't be that. And it had no effect whatsoever. 
And so in a way, from that, I uh, left my interest in politics and I went more into what I would call was really strange for me, interest in spirituality. In those days, in the 70s, you did not have so much. So I went to live in England. I tried this and that, different kind of uh, spiritual stuff around. And then I decided to leave Europe because there was this kind of dream, a little uh, having read... Um, certain books talking about spirituality. And I thought, you know, looking for a teacher, looking for something. And so I went to India. I mean, hitchhiking and, you know, kind of uh, on the hippie trail, it was called. Mm -hmm. And then I got to India, but because I had never really traveled before, I made a mistake in the, in my passport. And so I could only have a single entry to India. I went to Nepal, I could not get back in. Somebody helped me to get back in, but I had to get out. So then I decided to go because I wanted to go to Bodh Gaya or to Dharamsala. And now I could not go there anymore. And then I met some Japanese who told me that in Thailand, I could find some Buddhism. And then of course in Japan, I could find some Buddhism, some meditation. So I went to Thailand. And again, quite a few things happened in Thailand by accident. I was given the wrong plane ticket uh, going from uh, Bangkok to Kyoto to Tokyo to Osaka. Instead of going to Osaka, it was putting Seoul on the way to Tokyo. And then again, by chance, I met some Korean monks. And then I thought, well, why not go to Korea for a month? I have $100, there is meditation there, that could be interesting. So I uh, arrive in Korea, I go to this uh, nunnery where nobody speaks English, then they send me to this monastery, which at the time, in 75, was the only place where there were some uh, Westerners, and I end up in Songwangsa. And in Songwangsa, this is the biggest ceremony of the year, and I straight away, I go to help in the kitchen. There is this lady who is about 50, a Korean lady. And she asked me, are you married? No. Do you have children? No. Are you studying? No. Are you working? No. And then she said to me, well, if I was like you, free, I would become a nun. And then I thought, this is why not? This is a good idea. <laughs> no. For the last three years, 18 to 22, four years, I kept repeating the same mistake, getting into the same suffering. I thought, well, why not? Becoming a nun, maybe I could learn not to repeat the same thing. So then I would have the same suffering. And I thought I could learn Tai Chi, calligraphy, a bit of meditation for a year or two. Why not? And then I became a nun. So Master Kuzan accepted for me to become a nun. I uh, never learned Tai Chi nor calligraphy, but I did learn meditation. That's the way I encountered Buddhism. Mm, very cool. That's random in some sense, but it sounds like there was a kind of serendipitous uh, situation where you just suddenly found yourself in Korea at this nunnery. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, um, yeah, no, no. I was. I consider myself extremely lucky because I think actually Korea was the only place where I could have become a nun. I could not have become a nun anywhere else. 
Mm, that's so interesting. And when you were doing that kind of practice, I, I want to hear a little bit about what that was like, because I understand that you did practice very intensively while you, were, while you were there. And I understand that you stayed more than just the year or two that you may have planned on. So maybe you could share a little bit about your time there and, and what it was like, like the actual uh, rhythms of being a nun there. So what is important to see that I arrived in a monastery and I was allowed to stay there as a nun because it was the only place which had Westerners. And so they found a little place on the side for the few Western women who became nuns. And so we followed the, the schedule, which is three months in winter and in summer. You sit 10 hours a day for three months at a time. And then the spring and the autumn, then you sit four hours a day. And then in the daytime, you can continue to sit if you want, or you can go for walks or learn the language, or it's what's called a bit free time. Or you can visit monasteries or nunneries, and that's what I used to do. During the free period, I used to visit like the great masters. Hmm. And then what you do is basically you get up at three o'clock in the morning, you sit twice, 50 minutes, you sit, then you walk 10 minutes inside the zendo, the zen hall, but you walk at an ordinary pace for 10 minutes, and then you sit again 50 minutes, then you have a breakfast around six-ish, then again, you start again. In the morning, you have three hours of sitting, afternoon, four hours of sitting, and then in the evening, you again have two hours of sitting. And then in the middle of the day, around four o'clock, generally, you have a working period. Wow. So this is really intensive practice that you're doing then during these periods. I would not say, you see, these 10 hours a day for Korean Buddhism, for Korean Zen, or what is called in Korea, Korean Son, is not intensive. Really? Intense. No, this is ordinary practice. Because oh, wow. you then and you sleep six. That's really ordinary practice. It gets start to get intense practice. If you do 14 hours of sitting, with only four hours of sleeping. Or if you do non-sleep right. practice, no lying down practice, that's intense. Okay. Did you do some of that intensive practice as well while you were there? Were you really- well, Once I tried, because I really wanted to try it, so I tried and we did a few women together in one room. We did for four days, non-sleep practice. So all day, all night. And that was interesting. Because you see, after the third day, you were so tired, you could not proliferate. You could just do the questioning mm. because you were too tired to think. <laughs> and that level was very effective. But you were a little kind of vague and easy when you walked outside. It was a bit weird as a feeling. That's so interesting. And you mentioned um, questioning. I understand one of your central practices was a type of inquiry, exploring a particular question. And from what I've heard, it's sometimes translated as, what is this? Yeah, no, the practice of questioning, it comes from China, but they really have followed the master who really instituted it in the 12th century, Master Dawi, the Chinese master. So the idea that you have the koan, and then out of the koan, you have what they call the wadu, which is in a way the main point. And then you work on the main point. 
And so you have 1,700 koans. And so this is just one of them, but this is the one which is used the most. The koan is you have Winang, the sixth patriarch, and then you have Huijang, a young monk who comes to visit him. And then they have a little interchange, and out of that interchange, you have this what is this as a main point, what's called the wadu. And then the practice is actually you just have that one question, and you sit in meditation, and you just ask it, what is this? What is this? And so it's very important to see that this is a practice of questioning. This is not a practice of answering. Because like in Japan, in the 17th century with Hakuin, things change and they have this system of passing koans. This you do not have in Korea. So in Korea, what is most important is a sensation of questioning. So you don't change koans. You keep your one wadu, for example, what is this? And you do this for your whole life. Mm. Because they have the idea that if you cultivate the sensation of questioning with one wadu, one question, you can do it with all. And so the idea is really to kind of develop a sensation of questioning, which is kind of like becomes greater and greater until it bursts. So it's kind of called the mass of questioning. And then the idea is that it bursts into a breakthrough and understanding. But also what was special in my temple, uh, Song Guang San, is that they follow Chino. And so Chinul is one of the one of the rare Zen master who believed in sudden awakening followed by gradual practice. When generally Zen is considered a lot, most of the people do sudden practice, sudden awakening. So here it's sudden awakening, sudden practice. And here you are in this temple where they do sudden awakening and gradual practice which then the idea is that you do the questioning, you have a breakthrough, but you still have the habits which you have to work with. Then you continue to practice, you have another breakthrough, then you have more cultivation with the habits and things, and so on and so forth. Like, for example, my teacher, Master Kuzan, was reputed to have had three awakenings. Okay, really interesting. So in other words, there was a, a recognition in how you're practicing that you may have these awakening experiences and then you have to follow that up with practice. And actually, you mentioned Shanul. I'm not really familiar with Korean Buddhism that much, but one of my early teachers did turn me on to this book, Tracing Back the Radiance, which was a translation of some of his teachings, I guess. And I remember this one metaphor that stuck with me about what you're saying was that even though the sun may be out, it doesn't mean all the snow will melt all at once, that there's then a process of melting. So it sounds like in some way you're describing something like that. What, what was your experience with that? How did you find it to be? Well, you see, I did all this Zen practice, and it has really influenced how I practice, how I teach, and everything like that. But I was really not a sudden awakening, sudden practice type of person, because what really motivates me is not so much this kind of fabled awakening. What interests me is how can I develop wisdom and compassion? Now, how can I dissolve the habits? So I won't mention any kind of, I had various, what I would call breakthrough, 
but I would not say it was amazing awakenings. But what was interesting for me nowadays, working also with Vipassana, is that by cultivating the questioning, which we never talked about awareness, Vipassana, or anything of that nature, actually within six months, I was developing awareness. And that awareness was making a difference to the way I was looking at things, to the way I would be speaking or whatever. So I might not be the best person because I am not one of these Zen kind of 100% type of person. And I looked at the Zen practice in a very pragmatic way. And how long, you spent something like nine or 10 years doing the same rhythm or the same routine of three months on, three months not off, but sort of less intense. You were there for a long time, weren't you? Yeah, I was, I was there for 10 years. Wow. Also, what is very important to say is that in Korea, you are not in silence. So that during the three months, also it's intense. It is not the same intensity as on a silent retreat. So actually what you have in the system in Korea is that as you sit, I mean, yes, you sit a lot. You sit, you know, 10 hours a day, day after day. But every two weeks, you have, in a way, two days off. I mean, you sit four hours each two days. But one day is a bath day where you wash and clean your clothes and everything and you shave your head. And then you go for walks in the mountain, all with your buddies and things. And then the next day is like ceremony where you listen to a talk. So you just have a Dharma talk once every two weeks there. And what is interesting here is that you have two things. One is that it really makes you self-reliant. You don't go to the teacher all the time or ask questions all the time. They really believe in self-reliance, that it really depends on you. The other aspect of that is that because you can talk, I mean, you sit 10 hours, you, you eat in silence, and you sleep six hours, so you don't speak much. But you can speak, which means that you can get into trouble <laughs> and work with it. And so you get what I would call in a less rarefied atmosphere. But yes, it's intensity, but intensity which is kind of brought down again and again with, you know, working with people, talking, this happens, that happens. And so I think it's kind of like a different type of intensity you would have. For example, on a three months uh, silent vipassana retreat. Gotcha. Okay, that's really interesting. It, it's helpful for me to hear those differences because I've done more of the the rarefied thing myself. And then I'm wondering because this is such a you know ten years is a long period to be doing this type of training, and I'm wondering what kinds of things you did notice change, not just about yourself, but also your experience of life and your experience with relationships. I know that after this time, um, you did get married. You and Stephen got married after you left the monastery. So I'd be curious to hear just how this period, this decade of intensive practice changed your experience of things. Well, first, you see, again, from a Korean perspective, 10 years is nothing. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. From the traditional you know, way of training. Long, but like 10 years, you're just starting there. So many years back, I came back as a person to do some research in Korea for one of my books. 
And one, I went to see these really serious nuns. They were doing three years retreat, but again, they're really nice and friendly and et cetera, et cetera. And one of them, you know, is uh, asking me, but what do you do now, you know, in the West? I said, I'm teaching meditation. And she said, what? You are teaching meditation? And she laughed like, you know, it was kind of the craziest thing she ever heard. Me who had just meditated for 10 years, I was already teaching. So it's a little different. So for me, 10 years, it's just like, it really was my training. And so, of course, I could see certain things change. But I would not say that at that time, they were that dramatic, you know, because it's very interesting when you sit in this way, it's not special, it's really not special. And so you have this rhythm, you sit for uh, the first two weeks of the three months are really tough, really tough, really difficult. And then you have the next two months and you're thinking, I'm going to do this forever after this is so fantastic. And then the last two weeks, you're really ready to go. So it was very interesting for me to see this reason. In a way, often we have this idea that, you know, you just go up and up and up and up. But I don't think that's the way it works. You go up and down, you learn something, then you have something else to learn. So I would not say uh, there was lots of major changes, which was obvious to me at the time. What was interesting is when I left. What is interesting is when I left, in terms of relationship, is that I became a nun because I kept having romantic adventures and I did not find them very satisfactory. And I thought, well, if I become a nun, at least I won't have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. And actually, being a nun was wonderful because I could be with men and not worry about anything, not check the vibes, send vibes, or things like that. So for 10 years, it was really nice at that level. But I think it's very important to see that as monastic, you can go in depth in certain ways, but in other ways, you're really not dealing with certain things. And so I would say for 10 years, I did not deal at all with romantic relationships. So that when I left the monastery, when I stopped being a nun, I mean, I was 32 at the time, and emotionally, I felt I was 18. And so it was a little extreme, especially as I fell in love with Stephen and we got uh, married and all that after we stopped being monks and nuns. And what was interesting for me then is that these 10 years of practice, then I had to put them into action. And so I came back, went to live in England with Stephen in a community. And I was in this really weird place of feeling 18 emotionally. And then I had, at the same time, I was this nun who had done lots of meditation previously. And it took me six months to actually find the way to bring all what I had cultivated in Korea to my daily life in the real world. Mm-hmm. And after that, it was fine. After that... What I found is even now, in a way, I feel the benefit of these 10 years. What I feel is like um, a ground. Like by sitting for 10 years in that way, it really gave me a ground within myself. But then what I had to do, which I did, was to continue to cultivate it. And so to me, that's in a way what I'm learning. I continue to learn all the time, 
because what I would call that food, to me it was kind of like getting really nurtured for 10 years. And then for the last 30 years, I'm just kind of applying it, continue to develop it, etc., etc. That's beautiful. And it's so interesting as you're describing, to me, you're describing kind of two different perspectives that crop up again and again in our conversations here on Buddhist Geeks. One is maybe more the traditional perspectives of different Asian cultures. You know, we've got the Tibetan retreats doing three years, three months, three weeks, three days, sometimes people doing multiple of those, two, three, four of those. Cave yogi spending 20, 30 years in a cave going deep. You know, there's a rich history of very, very, very intensive practice, lifelong intensive practice in these Asian traditions. And then now as Buddhism's come to the West, we have this whole other way of orienting toward practice that seems to also be emerging, which you also described, of saying, okay, you know, you can go really, 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 really deep in certain ways, but then you still, if you're living in this context, which is so much more complex in a certain way, the modern and postmodern context that we're in, you know, all these things are happening, everything's changing really quickly, we've got the internet, we've got all kinds of complex relationships, business relationships, you know, everything like that. And then there's this question about, well, how does practice apply, no matter how deep you may have gone, to these other domains? And then there's a question about that that also comes up really strongly, especially um, in Western Buddhism. So it, it's so interesting to me, you're kind of describing both of these, and you seem to acknowledge that there's something important in both. But I wondered if you maybe could say a little bit more about that. You have to see, I feel that our practice is at the crossroad of the two dimensions, of the depth dimension, but also the width dimension. I think it's very important to see we are at that crossroad. If you put too much emphasis on the depth dimension, something is missing. If you put too much emphasis on the width dimension, something is missing. So what I would say is that in the depth dimension, why can you go in depth? because generally you are in very narrow circumstances. That you be on a Vipassana retreat for three months in silence and everything is done for you apart from your little job, that you are on a Zen monastery, which will be a little more akin to daily life, but still you will have kind of a certain schedule and you're not working and you don't have family and so forth, or that you are in the mountain by yourself, etc. You have narrowed. It's very important to see. I mean, the Buddha understood that if you narrow the circumstances, then it's easier to go in depth to some ways. And I would agree there. But if you want to become a professional monastic, a professional hermit, then fine. That's what you do. And there is a place for that. But most people can't do this. And so... In a way, what we have to see is also the richness of the width dimension, where, as you say, things are complicated, are complex. You have to earn your living. You have to take care of things. You see things in the street, etc., etc. You have responsibility, etc., etc. And so I think it's very important to see that there is these two aspects. To me, if you just have the depth, then it's limited. Because you can't only have the depth within these narrow circumstances. And my thing is that, you know, you hear about this great teacher everybody revere. And my question as a test is, what would this teacher do in the middle of the night 
in a car which has broken down, their mobile phone is not working, and it's pouring with rain. How would they be in that moment? And I traveled with my teacher, Master Cousin, and I saw him in this condition, and he really was equanimous, and I was very impressed with him. So to me, what is important is we have to remember the three training of ethics, meditation, and wisdom. If we put too much emphasis on meditation, meditation is only within a certain narrow circumstances, if you want to get in the depths of it. But I think human beings are multi-perspectival. And so we don't just want to just kind of confine to that intense, narrow place, which is good, but a human being is multi-perspectival, so there is so much we can cultivate, and so we, we can become more of ourselves. Our potential can go in many different directions. When I came back from being a nun for 10 years, I did not know what to do with uh, children, because they, I'd never been with children for 10 years. I mean, they were like kind of, you know, Martians for me. Mm. So then mm. I decided, okay, I don't know how to deal with children. I learned about it. So I went for a nine-month course of, you know, dealing with uh, preschool children. It was fantastic. And I met people there I would not have met in my kind of spiritual kind of background. So to me, I think there is really something important in cultivating the width and also in terms of relationship, in terms of the way we relate to the world, to others. And it's very rich. And so we have to be careful of that, what I would call the Theravada idea, but you also find it in Zen that, you know, in the monastery, in the intensity is purity, and outside it's impure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could have a guy sitting for hours on his meditation and he could just have lots of blue movies in his head. <laughs> I mean, that's what some of the monks were telling me they were doing when they were sitting. So I think, to me, it's very much about the two, being at the crossroad and cultivating both. The meditation, the intensity will give us what I would call Stability, stability. We need the stability because the problem with the width is that we can be very easily overwhelmed by the movement, by what's going on. So we need the stability, but at the same time, to enrich the stability, we need the openness. And I think we get the openness from working with the width, from working with our life in all its aspects. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. 
After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.